0: All right. Well, good morning. As as I've been doing, we're going to be continuing working our way through the book of Exodus. And we're continuing in Exodus 30. And I had kind of given an outline before Exodus 30. You can really break it down into five broad sections. And the very first section of Exodus thirty gives the instructions for building the altar of incense. Uh, and the last section gives instructions for the recipe of the incense that goes on the altar. And we and we looked at that before. And we looked at how that altar symbolizes the place of prayer in the life of the believer. That 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 altar it speaks to us both of our role of, of believers and our role of prayer, but it also speaks of the role of the high priest in our lives. Well, today we're going to look at what is really sandwiched in between uh, those two sections. And that is the section verses 11 all the way through 33, with the primary focus on the atonement money, or sometimes called the ransom money. Redemption. You know, redemption is such a rich biblical theme. The word redeem means to buy out. The term is really used specifically in the purchase of a slave's Freedom. And so you think of this as we, in the application of Christ's death, his death on the cross, and it's quite telling. If we are redeemed, then that has to mean that our prior position before being redeemed was a position of slavery. We have to be redeemed out of that. And God has purchased. Our freedom, we're no longer in bondage, in slavery to sin, or to the Old Testament law. And the scripture, the Bible often describes salvation as a rescue of life, as a rescue through a payment of a ransom. And we find this example Here in Exodus uh, 30. Now beginning in verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there will be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, "...half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord, everyone who is numbered in the census, from twenty years old and upward, shall give the Lord's offering." Now you read through that and you go, a census? What's that got to do with anything, right? It's not uncommon to take a census. Most countries take a census. We had our most recent census in this country just a couple of years ago in 2020. And really, God expected his people to take a census as well. Now, literally, he told them to take a head count. I love that. The Hebrew phrase for taking a census means lift up the head. Now, the Israelites took their first head count in the, in the wilderness. Uh, the results there were captured in the book of Numbers, where God told Moses, he says, take a census of all the congregations of the people of Israel, by clans, by father's houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head. And the Israelites, they probably did this on other occasions as well. And it's interesting that the Hebrew word translated to count or to number also carries military connotations. It means to muster for battle. So consider that the only people counted were males, 20 years old or older. In other words, the Israelites were counting men old enough for battle. Uh, but whenever the Israelites took a census, God wanted to do it in a particular way. and. If you've been following me through the book of Exodus, you've noticed that everything that God told Moses to do, he said do it in a particular way. I mean, the the ceremony that the priest had to go through had to be done a particular way, God's way. And guess what? It's the very same with taking a census. All the men were put together in one place. And as they numbered off one by one, They crossed over from one side to the other. Now, moving from one group to the other, they paid half a shekel, uh, probably made of silver. Now in those days, a shekel wasn't a monetary value, but it was a weight, a, a weight unit of measure. And the size actually varied throughout the ancient world. And that's why we have in Scripture uh, that it says half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. So God's telling Moses, use the shekel of the sanctuary as the standard measurement of weight. Uh, But a shekel was small. And a half a shekel would have been even smaller. But all of those half shekels would have added up to a lot. And by the time Moses finished counting, there would have been a huge pile of silver. This money, this silver, all of these half shekels belonged to God. All the proceeds primarily went to the construction of God's holy sanctuary, the temple. And so God said to Moses, You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting so that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. So some of this money, it may have been used for the ongoing maintenance of the tabernacle, but it was primarily used for the foundations that held up the posts of the tabernacle. Now get this if you remember we've already studied the foundations of the, of the tent of meeting and those foundations were made of silver and so whenever the Israelites saw the foundations of that temple they would remember that their house of worship rested on the price that was paid for their redemption What a thing to think about. When, every time they saw that That's the foundation of God's temple, the tabernacle, rested on the price paid for my redemption. Now, it's interesting, too, that the punishment for failing to pay the ransom price was severe. Any man who failed to make a contribution was afflicted with one of the very plagues that God had sent against Pharaoh. And that plague was deadly disease. So taken as, you I've said this before. All of the, you know, following the priest lived risky lives. Taking a census was risky business. Doing it properly was a matter of life and death. And there's a famous example of the dangers of census taken that comes from the life of King David. He once decided to count his fighting men. And this was actually over the strenuous objections of his general Joab. Joab said to David, you know, David's going, I want to count and see how big my army is. And Joab's going, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are. And may may he do it while the eyes of my king still see. But why does the king delight in doing this thing? Don't do it, David. Don't do it. Joab Sure, he wanted David to have a big army. But he didn't really want him to figure out how big his army was. Because he knew how dangerous it was to take a census. And yet David, he was undeterred. He goes, I'm going to take a census anyway. And he went ahead with the census. And unfortunately, he did not do it the way God commanded. He numbered the troops without having them pay half a shekel. And God judged Israel for this, for David's sin. This Bible tells us the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. This was in keeping with what God had said to Moses, taking a census without paying a ransom would bring a deadly plague on the people. God means business when he tells us what to do. But this really raises the question, why? Why would it be so dangerous to take a census? It it helps us to understand something. Who has the authority to count something, to take a census? In a business, who has the right to come into a business and take an inventory? Well, the business has the right to take its own inventory, right? Would you feel comfortable if I came into your house and started counting all the money in your purse or wallet, uh, uh, seeing how much money you had? If only if you're the IRS. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't be there alone. <laughs> well, exactly. You know, only the person who owns the property really has a right to count it we count we have the authority to count things that are rightfully ours we can't put our numbers our count, on somebody else's property well we shouldn't and so who had the right to take a census and count the number of Israelites what does scripture say these were God's people right of only God. They were his people, so he alone had the authority to count them. Uh, A.W. Pink, who I love to read, has, has said this. He said, When God numbers or orders anything to be numbered, taking the sum denotes that this item or these people belong to God, and that he has the sovereign right to do with them what he pleases. I mean the action itself says when you're taking the census, it says of God, these are mine I will assign them their place as I will and so the only proper way for the Israelites to take a census was for the glory of God alone. And so when the Israelites took a census, they were in danger of forgetting that it was for the glory of God because they were the ones doing the counting and they would be tempted to think that their great numbers were a credit to themselves we are a great people just look at us as opposed to being a credit to God and say look at what God has done for us and you know although it was not a sin to take a census It was certainly a sin to rob God of his glory. And that was what David had done. That was David's downfall. You know, wow, look at how many troops I have. I just wonder how big my army is. And yet, David got caught up in the numbers game. He wanted to boast in the size of his army. I wonder, I know I've gotten caught up in a numbers game before. Think of the temptation... I mean, I think it's a temptation of bragging or boasting for everyone. You know, we could base our self-worth on our grade point average. We could base it on, uh, you know, you could base it on your football team's scoring statistics. Our sales performance. The size of our portfolio, our financial portfolio. yeah, you know, the, the size of our business. You know, if there's anything we can count, we keep checking on it to see how we're doing. When we're doing well, we do. We use those numbers to kind of boast our own sense of importance. But what happens when we're not doing so well? If you've invested a lot in the stock market and it starts tanking, we make excuses and get angry or get discouraged. But either way, we're keeping score. I would argue that we shouldn't do this kind of keeping score at all. Why? Because the truth is, everything that we are, everything that we have, belongs to God. Now, to make sure the Israelites remembered this, Especially when they were taking a census and might be tempted to forget. God required this ransom payment from every man in Israel. And by paying half a shekel, which really wasn't that much, but by paying half a shekel, they were acknowledging that they did not belong to themselves, but that they belonged to God. Now understand, this payment did not atone for sin. You know, as we've seen time and time again in Exodus, atonement only comes through the sacrifice of blood. Everyone in Israel had already received atonement through the sin offering made on the altar of sacrifice. In the same way, salvation from sin is always a free gift of God's grace a gift that, as scripture says, comes without money or without price, there is no payment we could ever make for our sins. Nevertheless, there was a ransom paid during the census that was called the ransom money or maybe some translations, the atonement money. And although it did not atone for people's sins, according to God, it made atonement for their lives. It rescued them from the particular punishment of the plague that we just read would happen if they didn't pay it. It reminded them that they belonged to God and not to themselves. So as we think about it, Israel's payment of atonement money should remind us of the price that was paid for our own redemption. As believers, what does scripture say? It says you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And what a costly, costly price that was. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, the Israelites were ransomed with a small sliver of silver, which was precious enough, but we have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Jesus Christ paid for our sins through his death on the cross. And so this means That we belong to God not only through creation, but also through or by redemption. We owe our lives to Him now and forever. And rather than taking any credit for ourselves or claiming the right to live the way that we please, we must always remember we belong to God understand this, and that this is why it's so important to remember that we belong to God, is that our true worth, our true worth is the price he paid to redeem us. You think you're valuable? Or you think you're not valuable? Either way, our true worth is the price he paid to redeem us. And think about this. This is not a value that we set on ourselves, but the value that God placed on us through the death of His Son. It's not one little bitty half-shackle. And so whenever we're tempted to feel worthless or of no value, we should remember the great great price that God has paid for our redemption you know I think people sometimes ask well how could God ever love someone like me I'll be honest I don't know how he could love someone like me I know that he does though that's what I do know is that God loves me God loves us and he has proven it by sending his very own son to be our savior And get this, this is wonderful too. Jesus paid the same price for every one of us. And the ransom price for the census, it made a powerful statement about this. God said to Moses, the rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel whenever you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. So every Israelite, rich and poor, was equal in God's sight. Rich, poor, no matter what, they all paid the same price. No one was worth more or any less than anyone else. Everyone stood before God on equal terms. Think about that and think about what value God has placed on us Jesus died on a cross to pay the price for our sin and everyone who trusts in him is redeemed through that redemption male, female, young, old whatever skin color the same price was paid for us all you see I said earlier there there is no payment of sin without sacrifice without the shedding of blood and it was the blood of God's own son that is the true basis for full equality for full equality in the church so the the payment of a ransom i think is a wonderful picture of salvation and i hope you see that but there's more here in the scripture The Bible uses many images to describe God's saving work. I think each one teaches us something essential. We have been ransomed. We've been redeemed. We've been rescued. We've been reborn. Think about that. We've been elected, enlightened. We've been delivered. We've been justified, adopted, raised from the dead. Each of these biblical images tells the same story of salvation in a different way. And the the next image of salvation that we come to here in Scripture is starts in verses Exodus thirty, verse seventeen. The Lord tells Moses, he said, You shall make a basin of bronze, with its stand of bronze for washing. You put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it, which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come out near when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, excuse me, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. So this basin, this was the last piece of furniture for the tabernacle, and it went in the courtyard between the altar of sacrifice and the doorway to the tent of meeting. And like everything else out in the courtyard, it was made of bronze. Now, we don't get an exact description of the shape, but presumably it was round, large enough to hold a sufficient amount of water for the priests to wash. And the one thing that we do know about is that to be transportable, it came in two parts. You had the, the basin itself, the top part, and then the, the pedestal. But this wash basin basin was in constant use. Before a priest went into the tent of meeting to perform their sacred duties in the tent of meeting, he had to stop at this bronze basin. You know, It was located right at the entrance to remind them, hey, stop here, wash off. They were to wash their hands and their feet primary body parts that they were using to serve the Lord. And the priest also had to wash up before they made any type of a sacrifice on the great bronze altar. So as the priest came and went, they were always stopping at this basin for cleansing. Now like everything else that the priest did, this was a matter of life and death. Uh, I was thinking back, I was reading through this when When Wendy and I lived in Japan, you had to take off your shoes before entering a house. There were even lots of businesses where you had to take off your shoes before entering. Uh, Primarily, they they had tatami mat floors, and a lot of times they were sitting on the floor to eat. They would roll out mats, and in some houses they were sleeping just on mats right above the floor. So it was very important to keep the floors clean. But here, I mean there are, I would say typically we don't take off our shoes when we enter a house. And you know, you could take it the next step. There are probably some some places where people don't care if you wipe your feet off before going into their house. Well, there might be some places where people aren't concerned if you've washed your hands before sitting down to a meal. But that's not how things are in God's household where in this case cleanliness really is next to godliness the priest had to wash or die as, as David once asked he said who may ascend the hill of the Lord who may stand in his holy place you remember the answer to that he who has clean hands and a pure heart So washing up was partly a matter of respect, you understand. The priests, as they entered the tabernacle, were coming to worship God. It was only right for them to go through a ceremonial purification. I mean, especially if they had been bloody from all the sacrifices. And so washing their hands and their feet was a part of spiritual preparation. This physical washing was a sign of spiritual cleansing. I mean, it was was symbolic of their sanctification, which was something that they needed not once, but every time they served. And the priest had already received a once-for-all cleansing from their sin when they had been ordained. Before they were ever allowed to set foot in the courtyard of the tabernacle, they had been washed head to toe they had been consecrated to priestly service of God so why did the priest need to keep washing if they had already received cleansing and atonement from sin why did they have to continue to use the bronze basin well the answer is that they needed to be sanctified for service to God even after they were forgiven for their sin, forgiven for what they had done, they still needed God to make them holy. And the the layout of the tabernacle really shows us this. The first thing the priest encountered, I said, was this great bronze altar of sacrifice, the place where atonement was first made for sin. The altar itself was symbolic of their justification. You see, they were accepted by God on the basis Of the sacrifice and the very next thing that they encountered was this bronze wash basin which was symbolic not of sacrifice but of sanctification the guilt of their sin had been taken away on the altar of sacrifice and their sins were forgiven but they were still sinners and in order to cleanse themselves from the corruption of ongoing sin in their lives the priests had to wash their hands and feet. See, this ritual cleansing was symbolic of, a, of their progress in holiness. Even the priests, as holy as they were, had to be sanctified before they could enter the holy place and serve a holy God. We see the same thing as Christians, right? We can use the layout of the tabernacle to kind of trace our own Christian experience and and progress as soon as we come to God through faith in Christ we receive full forgiveness for our sins through his death on the cross but does this mean that we are made perfectly holy after you came to Christ did you ever sin again (laughs) yeah yeah, uh, oops so but see, that does not mean that we were made perfectly holy. We continue to sin. And we need constant cleansing from the corruption of sin. Just as that bronze altar was symbolic for the priests, in a sense it's symbolic of our... Uh, the altar was symbolic of justification. The wash basin is symbolic of our sanctification. the The basin, you see, provided a type of cleansing... Which served to maintain, I guess I would say, fitness for spiritual ministry. You see, the priest's guilt because of sin was dealt with at the altar of sacrifice, yet, something else was required for effective fellowship and worship in the tabernacle. This had to do with the defilement of sin, the effect of sin. And before one could enter the presence of a holy God, that defilement of sin had to be cared for. I think so it is with a Christian believer today. We are freed from the guilt of sin and its penalty through the blood of Christ. Yet there remains, even in our own lives, a defilement of sin that comes through daily living. And this is taken care of through the continuous... Washing of water, which is the Word of God. The Holy Spirit applies the Word of God to our lives, producing a cleansing effect. There's a sanctification which is, which is complete and final through Christ, but a sanctification which is continuous and practical. And that also pays the way for our continual effective fellowship with God. God has forgiven us once and for all in Christ. But we still have to face the reality of indwelling sin in our lives. And as we serve God, we need to continually, we need Him to continually purify us, sanctify us, and make us clean. Scripture says, "Let Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit perfect in holiness out of reverence for God and there's a powerful illustration of this in John 13 this is the chapter where Jesus washes the disciples feet when Peter saw what Jesus was doing Peter probably know this story Peter says no you shall never wash my feet but Jesus answered unless I wash you you will have no part of me and of course Peter with his typical flair for excess says, well then Lord, not just my feet but my hands and my head as well and Jesus refused saying, no Peter, a person who has already had a bath needs only to wash his feet his whole body is clean and you are clean so Jesus even here was distinguishing between two types of cleansing one is the total cleansing that comes at the beginning of the Christian life and washes away the guilt of our sin. Another is the ongoing cleansing that's needed throughout the Christian life. The cleansing that washes away the corruption of sin and purifies us for service to God. And this is what Peter needed. Not the type of cleansing that would save him, but the type that would purify him for service to God. You know, by by washing the disciples' feet, the Lord taught that we who have been thoroughly cleansed through His blood must still be cleansed in our daily walk with Him. Daily sins must be confessed to God in order to maintain an unbroken communion and maintain fellowship with Him. We ask the question of how does God do this cleansing? How does He do this sanctifying work in our lives? he does it through the power of the Holy Spirit by the washing with water through the word God's spirit uses God's word to produce real spiritual change in our lives if we want to make progress in holiness we need to spend time in God's word asking God's spirit to sanctify us all the way through now Just to wrap this up, once the priests were clean, they were able to serve God in his holy sanctuary. And Exodus 30 ends by reminding us how holy it was. Everything in, on, and around the tabernacle was anointed with sacred oil. And in this way, it was set apart for God's service. Well, first, this oil had to be prepared. So the Lord said to Moses take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels a weight, and of sweet smell and cinnamon half as much, that is 250, 250 of uh, aromatic cane, 500 of cassia according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil, and you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer, it shall be a holy anointing oil. Now, by weight, this special blend, that's described right here, would have weighed about 40 pounds. And of course it featured really expensive ingredients from all over the world. Liquid myrrh, cinnamon bark, other rare imports from India, from Arabia, from Lebanon. Well, these fine ingredients were carefully processed and distilled in olive oil. And I can just imagine the fragrance that must have must have come from that. But this this oil became the sacred anointing oil specifically reserved for God. Now, once this oil was ready, it was applied directly to the tabernacle and all the sacred furnishings. So God said, with it. You shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of testimony and the tabernacle and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whoever touches them will become holy. Now the oil was not smeared on the tabernacle but sprinkled. A few drops on every curtain, every piece of furniture, and every holy utensil. Everything was set apart from its ordinary use and dedicated to the service of God. And so from then on, anything or anyone that touched them also had to be holy. In order for anything to touch the tabernacle, it had to be holy. Otherwise... And this is really just implied here, but otherwise, it had to be destroyed. Now in addition to anointing the tabernacle, the Israelites also anointed the priests. God said to Moses, you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall not make and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. This anointed oil was sacred. It was for the priests and only for the priests. No one else was allowed to wear it. No one else could use it. No one, nor were the priests allowed to use it for personal use. The penalty for violating his command was excommunication, cut off from Israel, possibly even death. And this shows how sacred it was to be anointed for God's service. This is true for ministers. A call to the gospel ministry is a sacred gift That only God can give. But ministers aren't the only people who are anointed to serve God. The Bible says that God has anointed us and put his spirit in our hearts. So in other words, every believer has been set apart for God's service. Do you see how that ties into the census? God taking a census says... I own this, I own him, I own that. This ties in because every believer, as a believer, we have been set aside for God's service. Our lives are sacred. By the anointing of the Holy Spirit, we have a high calling and a holy calling to do God's work in the world. We belong entirely to the Lord. We've been bought with a price. We no longer belong to ourselves, but to God. And this has staggering implications for everything we do and everything we have. It means that our possessions no longer belong to us. They belong to God and are to be used for His service. Our work belongs to God too. whether we work at home or in an office in sacred or secular work all of our energies should ultimately be directed to his glory and the same is true of our free time it ought to be used in a sanctified way with a desire to please God Spurgeon had this to say he said To a man who lives unto God, nothing is secular. Everything is sacred. A man who puts on his daily work clothes, that's like the priestly garments. That's like the priestly vestments. When a man sits down to his meal, it should be like he's sitting down to a sacrament with the Lord. When he goes forth to work, it should be like exercising the office of the priesthood. His breath is incense and his life is sacrifice to the Lord. Have you ever thought about that? You're living your life so that your breath is incense to the Lord and your life is as a sacrifice. This is our situation in life. Singleness belongs to God. Marriages belong to God. God intends a marriage to be the display of His divine love. Our children belong to God. They don't live for us or even for themselves. We're to raise them to live for God. The seasons of life that we're in belong to God as well. Younger Christians have a lifetime ahead of him it all belongs to God imagine what God can do as we're raising children, imagine what God can do with a lifetime, a whole life dedicated to his service older Christians we may feel like we've got less time to give but what time we have should be used for God in his glory So the question I guess is this, is what service have you been anointed for? You know, there's not one single part of who we are that belongs to us. In the same way that the whole tabernacle was anointed with holy oil, we, too, have been set apart for God, body and soul. Christ paid the costly price for our redemption to redeem us for our salvation and now we are called to give our best back in service to Him what do you have to give back? time money talent possessions, labor leisure whatever you have belongs to Jesus who bought you by his blood and it should be consecrated for his service what you have who you are should be used for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this portion of your word. Thank you that we have an opportunity to come and and seek you and and find this rich history in your word and Father, I pray that you would help us to respond to what we've heard today. Lord, it's it's beyond me. I think it's beyond us to understand how much you love us, and yet we can proclaim how gracious and how merciful you are to have redeemed, to have redeemed us. You paid the price for my sins, Lord. You ransomed me. So, Father, help us to. Order our lives in such a way that we acknowledge we do not belong to ourselves, but belong to you. May we offer up ourselves to you, Father, and be living sacrifices and display your glory in our lives.